develop into an actual image then. It was not something that um, many people were able to do. That changed in, in uh, 1889, just the end of the 1800s. A man named George Eastman invented a, a camera called the film camera. This camera was different than cameras before it or of its time. It came preloaded with a roll of flexible film. Uh, it was it, the the film could take up to a hundred different exposures, and um, was much simpler to operate. This um, this man George Eastman started a company called the Eastman Kodak Company, better known as Kodak today. And this camera he started selling this camera, and it started uh, becoming um, a very popular product of his day, and it continued to gain momentum into the 1900s. His marketing strategy was a little unique, too. Instead of making most of his money selling cameras, he made most of his money selling film and also providing the service to uh, to develop that film into pictures. So he would sell his cameras for fairly cheap that came preloaded with his film, and then his customers would send the camera back when it was uh, when it was full, and he would develop it. His tagline was, you press the button, we do the rest. It was a camera the average person could use, and it became really popular. Um, in 1935, it, uh, his company's success continued. It developed a product called Kodachrome, which was the first full-color film. And at this time already, Kodak, his company, was the leading camera Manufacturer. It was the leading uh, business in the industry, in the in the photography industry. By 1962, uh, crossed a, a major um, a major uh, milestone. They sold. They had one billion dollars in sales. Just a few years later, in 1966, they crossed two billion dollars. In 1972, just a few years after that, they crossed three billion in sales. By 1976, they were so dominant in the industry that they had almost pushed everybody else out of the market. They were the company in uh, the photography industry. They had over 90% market share in film. In 1981, they passed $10 billion in sales. But uh, backing up a few years, in 1975, one of their own engineers had created a new product. It's called the Digital Camera. Uh, but at this time, Kodak, like I said, was the biggest company in the industry, and they didn't see that this product had much potential. At the time, film was doing just great for them, so they decided to uh, continue down that path. But in the, the late 70s and 80s, that was kind of Kodak's high watermark. Change started to come to the industry, and they failed to adapt to that change. Sales started to flatten off and eventually began to drop. And slowly but surely over the years, it declined year after year until just a few years ago, and well, about 10 years ago, in 2012, they filed for bankrupt, bankruptcy. Now, why did this happen? Why did this company that was doing so well not make it through when times began to change? Change, um, change is, is, a, is a part of our lives. It happens to all of us. I was thinking recently about the idea of page-turn events. If you imagine our life as a book, every so often there'll be a page-turn, a time when whatever was normal is 
no longer going to be normal and something new is going to be normal. Or normal is going to change in some way. Something is coming to an end and something new is starting. These page turn events are usually bittersweet. Sometimes they're very bitter. Sometimes they're mostly sweet. And a lot of times it can be a mix of both. I remember thinking about this when I uh, left this area for Iraq to spend some time over there. It felt like a page turn event. There was things that... My normal life was changing. I felt that way when I left Iraq to come back here. What I had known as home there, in a way, for a while, I I remember driving out of there and thinking, I might never see this place again, or I might not be back for a very long time. It was a page-turn event. Normal life was changing again. These changes happen to us. They will happen to us if they haven't already. Um, And they'll happen to people around us. Change is inevitable. It's an inevitable part of life. It will. Um, it's it's going to happen. And as you get older, as I've experienced, it happens a lot. I'm in the middle of what they call the decisive decade of somebody's life. The decisive decade is the the, the ten years, the decade between when you're 18 and 28. Um. During this time, so many changes happen. So many of these page-turn events happen. Um, big decisions. You, you face big decisions during this time. Um, decisions that will change the course of your life. Decisions like career, marriage, even things like your beliefs and your values, the very um, central parts of your life. It's a very formative time as you grow out of childhood into adulthood. This decade uh, tends to make a big difference by the, by the time you, you leave that decade at 28, you're usually on a course, and sometimes it's different than what you thought it would be. Many people during this decade get off track. Um, they, don't, they don't end the decade like they thought they were going to. Others do very well. There, there's many people that do very well during this decade, and they, and they, um, and they come out the other side a, on a course that, that's... A good course for their life. Either way, this decade includes a lot of changes. It includes a lot of of, of these these page turn um, events in our life. And change in general, I think, has a more a greater potential to affect us when we're going through this decade. I'm halfway through it, roughly, almost, and um, I know for me, it seems like a lot changes really fast. Uh, a, a lot changes in a little amount of time. There's there's a lot of change, especially in the last little while. And maybe some of you don't feel that way, but I know a lot of you do. Especially you that are also going in this decade with me. There's multiple people that were here a short time ago and are no longer here. There's people that are here, there's new people here, that weren't here. There's many good changes. We've had a lot of weddings in the last while. That's some good changes, but it's also still changes. There's been some difficult ones as well, some difficult changes. And I guess what I have to say this morning is primarily for my generation, for the ones of you that are also in this decade, the ones of you that are facing a lot of change that maybe seems like it's happening really fast. Maybe you wish things could be the way they were five years ago or... Or would stay they way, stay the way they are now. 
Maybe you worry about change that's coming in the future. Maybe you worry that other people's lives are changing all around you and your life isn't changing or not in the same way. I was speaking to a church leader once in another community, not in this community, and he was um, he was bemoaning the fact that so many young people were leaving. Uh, so many young people were leaving his church and his community. And... And, he's, and I asked him why. Why did he think that was happening? And, and he said the reason is, he said he thinks that the reason is they get disillusioned by the waves that come in life. When, when these changes come and when things are, are maybe unstable, they, they look for greener pastures and they move out and they, and they find something that looks better to them. And so young married families and and young people were leaving right, left, and center in, in this community, and it was really tearing the community apart. It was a very difficult time for them. And I, I guess my my, uh, my my topic this morning, I, I want to, I don't want that to happen to us. I don't want us to face change and and face those waves that come. And I don't want it to rock our ship. I don't want it to capsize our boat how do we not end up like kodak when change comes how do we not completely lose our way kodak was doing so well until change came and then it failed how do we avoid that so what was Kodak's problem? What exactly was, why did, why did this happen to them? I think that the, the problem was Kodak's core identity. I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. When Kodak was, uh, when, when George Eastman founded the company in the 1890s, the company was a photography company. They, that was their goal, their mission, was to make photography available and to, to the general public. It was to, to make it accessible, to make it easy to use. They were a photography company, but as time went on, their identity, their core identity changed just ever so slightly. They eventually became a film company. They're no longer a photography company that did film. They were now a film company. And that was crucial when change came. And the photography industry moved on from film, but they didn't. Film was a very good way to to accomplish their mission for many years, but it, it became the mission itself. And that's what ended up causing them to lose their way once change in the industry came. They could be where Canon or Nikon is today, or, or even where... You know, the online photo industry is today, which is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. But they're not. They're basically a no-name. They didn't, um, they didn't, they, they failed to adapt and change because their identity was grounded in something that was ultimately unstable and didn't stand the test of time. So let's talk about identity a little bit. What is identity? Identity is how we view ourselves. It's how we define ourselves. If you ask the question, ask yourself, who are you? I want everyone to think about this. If you were going to describe yourself to a stranger and you were going to give the top five most important things to a stranger about yourself, what would they be? If you wanted to 
um, to describe yourself to someone. Um, this could be many different things. Just to give you an idea, you could say, I am a Hertzler, or I am a Gussie, or I am a Hall. Maybe for your married ones, I am a husband, or a wife, or a father, a mother. Maybe it's personality traits. I am a leader. I am laid back. I am an organizer, a hard worker. I am an outdoorsman. I am an intellectual. I am a fisherman. I am a farmer. I am a peacemaker. I am a person who stands for truth. What what would be your things? If you were going to describe yourself, what would it be? What would be the most important things? What would be not as important things? What makes you, you? Now, all these things I just listed are good things. We are defined in a large way by our family. We're defined by the friends we, we interact with, our peer group. We're defined by the community that we're in. Those things affect how we look at ourselves, how we identify. They become part of our, our identity. This is one of the reasons why community and family and friends is so important because it affects us. It affects how we view ourselves. It's also why it hurts when someone passes away or someone moves out of the area. If, if we're close to somebody and they're no longer in our life, it changes us in a way. And that's not an easy thing. I want to briefly talk, uh, this is not necessarily my main point this morning, but sometimes people identify with negative things. Um, sometimes, well, first of all, people do identify as part of their peer group, which is why friends are important. That's generally a good thing, but sometimes people identify as an enemy of somebody, as not a friend of somebody. We generally call this bitterness. This is a very uh, sad thing. And, and I guess if, if this is where you are, then I would encourage you to change that because why would you want to be identified as somebody who's, is you're not friends with? And I think so many people let the people they don't like change who they are. And I think one way to fix it is become friends with that person because you've now reversed it and you're, and you're, you're changing, you're, you're no longer identifying as, as enemies of somebody. They're defining their life by a person they don't like. It's a very sad situation. Also, people identify with really trivial things sometimes. You hear people, a lot of times younger people will say things like, I am a Ford guy or I am a Apple guy. That's very, uh, th- these things are very unstable. These are not things that you want to identify as. There's, you're fine to have opinions and thing, on things, but when we make our identity our opinion on a brand, it's, it's a very, um, unstable thing. Yesterday we were down at the football game and uh, we're witnessing down there and handing out tracks and we've seen a lot of people that were identifying as a duck. Very, very strange thing, but thousands of people. Back to identity. Our identity affects our motivation. Motivation and identity are linked very, very closely. For instance, um, if someone identifies as somebody who is in shape or somebody who is a fit person, they will that same person will start exercising more. And they've done many, many studies on this. This is, this is very uh, commonly known. If you identify as a healthy person, you'll start watching your diet. 
you would think it'd be the other way around. You would think if you start exercising, if you start um, eating eating healthy, then you'll start to view yourself as a healthy person or a person that's in shape. But it's not the way it works. Identity typically leads uh, motivation and actual change. And this is um, you can read a lot of books on this, and they've done a lot of studies on this. There was one study done. Uh, this was a while ago where they took um, a whole bunch of children. I think they were from a minority ethnic group here in America somewhere, and they um, they took half of them and they sent them to school just like normal. And the other half, before they went to school, they would set them down for a short class and they would tell them that um, how how basically tell the children to think about how they want to be as a student. Do you want to be a successful student in school? Do you want to do well? Do you want to be at the top of your class? And basically have them form this identity of someone who is that kind of person. And um, they were also told to um, view difficult experiences as, in school as um, as important because school that basically difficult experiences meant that school was important. And those children did way better in school than the ones that went to school just believing that they were probably not going to do well. Identity, how we view ourselves, impacts our motivation. It impacts our actions, and that's why how we view ourselves is very important. We also, um, we, we identify as many things, but some things we identify as are more core than other things. They're more fundamental. They're more, they're more root. They're more basic in our lives. Um, for instance, if you identify as a compassionate person, somebody with compassion, you may also, flowing from that, also start to view yourself as a charitable person, somebody that gives to needy people. That might, uh, com- your compassionate identity might be a root, a more core identity than your, than your charitable identity. And so if you no longer become compassionate, you'll no longer become charitable. Those things are, one thing is more fundamental, it's more core than the other. Or another example, you might identify as, um, a reader, somebody who enjoys to read, a bookworm maybe. Um, but you might have a more core identity of somebody who enjoys learning or somebody who is a student of history. And from that, you become a person that reads a lot. Um, we all have things that are more core, identities that are more core. And we'll get back to that in a minute. So again, just to recap quickly... We all have an identity, how we view ourselves, how we define ourselves. It's made up of a lot of different aspects. Um, We're a member of our family, a member of our community, a member of our peer group. Other things like personality and our values, they all play into how we view ourselves. And from that, it motivates us to, to go about our lives in a certain way. And some of these things are more core, they're more fundamental in our lives, and other things are built off from that. And the, the things that are more on the fringe are probably more subject to change. Now, let's open our Bibles to the book of Job. I want to look at him as an example. Job chapter 1.
We all know this story fairly well, so I'm not going to spend just a lot of the time reading. But just to recap, Job was a man. He was a very successful man. He was also a man that feared God. Um, And Satan talked to God and said, I I think if you took away all of the the blessings in Job's life, he um, he would no longer serve you. He would curse you. And God said, go ahead. You're, 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 you have permission to take those things away. And so one day, all at once, Job's ten children died by a windstorm. And then he lost his sheep and his camels and his oxen and his donkeys. All of his livelihood and his family. And his wife didn't even seem to uh, be on the same page as him either. So his, his relationship with his wife didn't seem to be very good. And his friends also were not really uh, very helpful at all either. He kind of lost everything he had. And then eventually he lost his health as well. In chapter 1, verse 20, uh, starting verse 20 through 22, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So you see, Job's response to this was to turn to God and to say, God, you're in control. And and you've given me all of this stuff. You've taken it all away. But his faith in God was still intact. His faith in God was still there. His identity as a servant of God was more core. It was more, it was more fundamental in his life than all of the other things that he identified as a father, a, a boss, a, a successful person or whatever other things he did. Those things were all secondary to his faith in God. And when those things were all taken away, he still had his faith in God. Now, Job did, uh, also, I want to just mention, Job didn't blame God. He also didn't blame Satan either. I think that's something that we can do sometimes when a lot of uh, things come our way that, that are difficult and, and hard things. We can, we can blame Satan, but that's not what Job did. He trusted in God. Um, t- turning over to chapter 3, verse 11. Job did ask questions, um, and this is one of them here. He said, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? I like how King James says, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? He was like saying, what's the point of my life? He was asking some really big questions here to God. Um, why, why did this happen to me? What's going on? And I don't think it's wrong. I think it's natural for us to ask questions in these scenarios where, where, where these big changes might come in our life and, and, and changes that we didn't plan and changes that we wish were different. And, and we ask God why. What's, what's going on? What's the meaning of all this? Are you, do you have some plan in all of this? And God's response was, Job, look how, look how big I am. Look how powerful I am in, in the last, chapters of job we see that god tells job do you do you have control in all these things look look you didn't i did i formed you in your womb you didn't uh do that i i created this world i created all of these 
these animals and, and all of this thing. He goes on and on about how powerful he is and basically saying, Job, trust me. Uh, but Job's response, again, let's turn to chapter 19. Job chapter 19, verse 25. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job says, ultimately, even after all of this was taken away, he says, my Redeemer lives. And he had his trust in God. So even when Job's life crumbled around him, he still had something more core. He had something that was unchanging that he could fall back to. Something deep-rooted in his identity was his faith in God and his trust in God. And he could trust that God was in control even though all of the other things in life were had completely fallen apart. So let me ask you the question, do you identify as a follower of Christ? I think most of us here would say yes to that. We do identify as a follower of Christ. But this is the question I want to ask you, maybe the more important question. Is that your core identity? Is that the fundamental thing about your identity? Or is that just an add-on? Is it just a, Are you just tacking that on because your family identifies that way and your church identifies that way and all your friends are are doing this, so you'll also be a follower of Christ too. If that's the case, then when the storms of life come, your faith in God isn't going to last. Because whatever is motivating you to follow Christ might be shaken. Your friend group might change, or or your community might fail you in some way. Or your family will change. Is it the core motivation for your life? Jesus said in in Luke 14, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I don't think he's saying that we should actually hate our father and mother and, and, and so forth. I think what he's saying is he's talking about this thing of identity. Is it really, am I really at your core? And these things are are uh, attached outside of that, or am I just an attachment to all of your other things in life? Because he's saying you can't be my disciple if that's the way it is. So what do we do when change comes our way, when, when, um, when, when difficult change comes our way, especially? When... Whatever we viewed as normal life is is changing to some kind of new normal that we weren't expecting. How do we not become a Kodak in this situation? How do we not completely get off track and eventually fail? I think the answer to this is is this thing of identity. If we use change in our lives to examine ourselves and to use it to bring Christ more and more and more closer to the core of our identity, we can actually grow through change and not lose out. When I was growing up, I there was a, there was a couple big changes I had when I was younger. I had a couple of my closest friends move away, 
And I remember this was a time in my life where I was going through this thing of identity. Um, I think it's a, it was a period of my life where I think a lot of, in, in my teenage years, where a lot of people struggle with identity. What, who am I really? And my closest friends, people that I spent a large part of my life with, were no longer in my life. And, and I had to ask that question, who am I? What is the motivating factor of my life? I even had big changes in my family that I didn't expect would ever happen. Normal life was, was changing. And I think, I, I guess what the message I want to get across to you guys is, if those changes come your way, which they probably most certainly will, Use those to make Christ more core in your life, to make him the motivating factor for everything else you do. And as these other, as you, as this change comes and you realize the instability of things that seemed so stable for so long, use that to make Christ the center of your life because that's the only way that you can have an anchor that won't change. And you can build all these other great things like family and community and church. You can build it off of that. But in the under, at the foundation of your life, you've got something that's going to be there five years from now and 30 years from now. It's not going to change. Like a lot of other things, maybe pretty much everything else will and can change. This is how we can use change to be a good thing in our life and actually flourish through it. And we can avoid becoming like a Kodak. I have uh, one more story I'd like to tell, and then I'll be finished. This is a story that happened to me recently, a few months ago. As most of you know, I've been frequently traveling to Pennsylvania to visit an important person in my life. And um, a few months ago, I was heading out there for another weekend, and I had a flight out of Portland. Um, and so I traveled up there. My flight was leaving on a Wednesday night, I believe, at around midnight and so i got up there had a busy day a busy week like i often do before i travel out there for the weekend and um i think we had a singing at nursing home wednesday night and i came back and grabbed my packed up my stuff and i headed up to the airport i got there around midnight and i stood in line for a long time um because something was going on i could tell i finally got up to the counter and the flight was canceled i think there had been some kind of weather problems or something the plane had never come in and the whole flight was canceled and they said, well, the soonest we can get you in is uh, like three days from now. So I said, well, that's not going to work. So I just canceled the flight, and I got my bags, and I took the bus out to my car, and I headed home. And I didn't know what to do exactly. I didn't know if I should try to get another flight out the very same day, um, which is obviously difficult to do. Um, I spent most of the, the trip home on the phone on hold, listening to beautiful hold music, with another, with the airline I was traveling home on, because it was a different airline, and um, basically at the end of that, they said, "No, sorry, that's not our problem. We can't, we can't cancel that flight. You're, you're stuck with that flight." So, I either had to cancel the trip and try to go the next weekend or something, um, and lose that return ticket, obviously, or try to get another ticket out the very next day. I didn't know what to do. I was just like, I had options, but I didn't know, I, there was no good option, and I just didn't know what to do. And I, I thought, maybe God doesn't want me to go. Like, obviously, it just didn't work out. Am I trying to push this door open? Am I trying to just make this work when God really doesn't want me to? And 
I've, I guess I've had other experiences in my life where I know that you need to seek God in these situations. And so I was trying to do that, but I wasn't getting any answers. And I finally got back and it was like at this point, 3.30 in the morning or something. And, and I was just exhausted. So I just crashed for a few hours and I got up um, the next morning and I still didn't know what to do. And there was just, there was, there wasn't any clear answers. And, and I went back and forth and, and um, talked to my girlfriend and they, um, I guess we, we talked it over and, and there still just wasn't a, a clear path forward. And, and um, in those situations, you often just want somebody to tell you what to do, but I didn't know what to do. Um, so finally, there was a ticket that came available that was decent, and I thought, well, let, let's just do it. I'm Dad had said, like, hey, Dennis, you're, you're ready. You're planning to go this weekend. You got your schedule cleared. Just, you should just do it. So I got another ticket for, for that evening, now a day later. And I jumped in my car, and I headed back up to Portland. Um, on my way, I hit really bad traffic and um, was stuck in traffic for a very long time. Finally made it to the airport, and just with just barely enough time. I did schedule, plan for enough time, so I, I made it to the airport, um, scrambled. I got to the gate, but about the time I got to the gate, it would have been boarding time, but they said, flight's been delayed about an hour and a half. And at this point, I was very uh, distraught, I guess, because my my layover in San Francisco was about an hour and a half. So now there was really not any way. Basically, the way the math worked is my flight was now scheduled to arrive about five minutes before the departure of my second flight, which if you've ever flown, you can't you can't get off the plane and get to the next plane in that amount of time. And plus... The airline says you got to be at the gate 10 minutes before departure time because they shut the gate down so they can get the plane backed out and get it on its way if everything goes as planned. So I was already five minutes. I already had a five-minute deficit. that so it, it just didn't work. And so at this point, I just didn't know what to do. What is God trying to show me? It wasn't so much the disappointment of, like, all my changed plans. That was definitely part of it, like um, just having my whole weekend plans re-jumbled and rescheduled so many times but that's kind of part of flying there's the potential for that and 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 so i was you know i've I've definitely experienced that before and i've maybe experienced that since even it's it's but this was different in a way i felt like i just didn't know if god was trying to show me something it wasn't the bible says in all that ways acknowledge him and he'll direct thy paths but i i wasn't feeling like god was directing my path and i didn't know what to do? I think I felt like Job in a way. Job had lost everything, and he said, "Why? Like, what's what's go- what's happening? What's going on?" And and I think there was a period where Job didn't have answers, and he was asking God. and And it wasn't that his trust or his faith was shaken; it was just that he didn't know where to turn. And Job, you know, his friend said, "Did you know? Did you commit some kind of sin that God is punishing you for?" And of course, that crossed my mind too. Is there something you know? Is 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 I, I think that probably would cross anybody's mind through a situation like this. Is there some kind of sin that God is trying to show me that I need to correct in my life? And so he's he's not just... I, I, I kept thinking, if God wanted me to go this weekend, why didn't the door just swing open? Why didn't I just take my flight and it all would just work out? Why was so many things changing and so many things getting canceled and rescheduled and, and so many unknowns and all of this? I was experiencing change in my life. Now, yes, it was on a small scale. It was just a weekend of plans. 
But I think this can apply to anybody that's experiencing change in your life, especially change that you didn't plan, change that you wish was different. I think God doesn't always show us why. And I think the reason is it's part of a test. Just like Job. Job was, God was testing Job. He was letting Satan do these things. And it was a test to see how Job would respond. And Job had to, in faith, trust God through the situation. And so after I heard that my flight was delayed there, come, leaving Portland, I, um, I talked to Dad for a while. I just didn't know what to do. I kind of ranted a while. And, um, and Dad said, well, the door hasn't completely been shut. There's still... Your flight was canceled, but you couldn't cancel your return flight, so there wasn't a good option to just plan for the next weekend. There was bad traffic, but you still made it there. There was a ticket available to fly out the same day. And there's still a flight leaving Portland in an hour. So just keep walking. Just keep taking one step at a time. Sometimes God doesn't show us clearly what his plan is for us. And sometimes there's a lot of questions. And I I guess I had a moment where I had a change of perspective there. And I said, you know, I need to just trust him and and be like Job where he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he's in control. And he, he can control the airlines. And he can, that's all very simple for him to do. And if he wants me to sit in the airport in San Francisco all night or if he doesn't want me to go, I just take it one day at a time. I just take it one step at a time. And there was a, Nothing had changed in the circumstance, but there was a change of perspective, and and there was a there was a feeling of that anchor. Feels like I was on. It, sometimes you're on a boat. Remember, on Sam had a little boat. We would ride around his creek in, and we'd drop the anchor in, and you would you would sit there and you'd fish for a while. Then it was time to move the boat. And I, I remember this down at like clear uh, like uh, Diamond Lake. Some of you guys have been down there too. It's time to pull up the anchor, and you'll start pulling rope, and there's nothing there. It feels like, and you'll start pulling and pulling and pulling. Finally, you'll hit. You'll feel the anchor tug. And then you have to really pull to get the anchor up. I felt like I was pulling rope for a while, and I'd finally felt that the anchor was there. And it was a. I've, I've felt this way a couple times in my life, where I felt the presence of God, like like very very close. And that's the way that you can navigate change in your life. And I guess that's what I want for all of you, especially you young people. You're going to experience a lot of change in your life. But if you have that anchor there, you can navigate it. So anyways, just to finish up here, I talked to the airline um, attendant and um, she said, well, I'm sorry, I can't let you fly out of Portland without another plan because there's, I don't think there's any way you're going to make this flight. There was, unless maybe there was a delay with the departing flight, but there was no sign of that. That flight, the plane had already arrived for the flight leaving San Francisco. There was no sign that, that there was going to be a delay there. So she said, I don't think you're going to make this flight, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll leave you an open seat on that flight so they don't rebook, you know, fill your seat up, but I'm going to rebook you on the next flight the next morning. So you've got a plan when you get there. You can sit there all night and then fly out the next morning. So I said, okay, let's, let's do it. And 
So we waited for the flight to, to leave. I sat there in the airport and, and in the middle of Portland airport and I think I was sitting on the ground and just crying some, not because I just felt the presence of God, not because I was distraught with what was happening at this point. It was just that I felt like God was in control. And so I, so we eventually took off. We we boarded the plane. We got right to the runway. The reason for the delay was an ATC uh, delay. Basically, air traffic control will say. I, I think there had been a there had been some bad weather in San Francisco, and so a bunch of planes couldn't land for a while. And so then all at once, in a really busy airport like San Francisco, it can become a big problem when all of a sudden a whole bunch of planes want to land at the same time. They just literally don't have enough time on each runway to get all those planes landed. So they'll tell all the planes that are heading to San Francisco that haven't took off, they said, hey, just wait for an hour and a half and then take off. So you'll get here and we'll actually have space to fit you in the schedule, the landing the, the landing schedule. So that way you're not just sitting in a holding pattern forever waiting to land. So they were told at a certain time, they told us at this certain time we're allowed to take off and we literally got on the runway and at the the, the moment it was... Like the the clock struck, I think it was eight thirty. They took off. Um, once they're in the air, they give you a wheels up to wheels down time. Sometimes they told me when they told us when we were going to get there, which was now a few minutes later, which it often is. Then even the delayed scheduled arrival. So now instead of me being five minutes short, I think it was like ten minutes short. And I was watching my clock when we finally landed in San Francisco. It was at this point like 15 minutes short. The the wheels up to wheels downtime is not usually extremely accurate. And so depending on how they route you into land, it, it just delayed us more. Everything that could have delayed it was delaying it. But at this point, I was I, I had a tremendous peace because I was like, hey, if, if God wants me to sit here all night, then I'll sit here all night. If he wants me to make that plane, then I'll make the plane. And... um. And at this point, too, uh, I think my girlfriend was scheduled to pick me up the next morning, and, and I hadn't told her otherwise because I said, I'll wait to see what happens. If, um, if, if I have to reschedule, then I'll reschedule. But until then, I'm just going to keep taking one step in front of me by faith and just keep going. We got on the ground, and our gate was full. There was a plane there, so we just sat there for probably 10 or 15 extra minutes. And finally, we pulled up to the gate. We had to stop again because there was planes in the way. Finally, they pulled the planes out of the way. We we got there. I was going to try to kind of push my way to the front, but there everybody was trying to push their way to the front. So that wasn't really working. Finally, they we got off the plane. I ran up the jetway, ran over to the other gate, and there were, they were still boarding the plane. It was still there. This was after the time of departure already. It wasn't delayed. It was just there still. And I... The weird thing was the big sign above the above the boarding gate said boarding gate closed. And it said, like, talk to the flight attendant to reschedule. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange. So I asked the guy in the line. I said, is this the flight going to Philadelphia? And he said, well, yeah, of course. He kind of looked at me like, what kind of question is that? So I said, okay. So I got in the back of the line. I There was only five people left or something. We all scanned our boarding pass. And I asked the agent. I said, why does it say boarding gate closed? And he looked up at the sign, and he's like, well, we're obviously still boarding. Come on. So I said, okay. Nobody seemed to have any reason for the delay. There's no. They didn't say like, I'm sorry for the delay. We'll try to get there, get you there as soon as possible. None of that. We got on the plane. We took off. I I checked the flight times later. All, all that you can go online and get all this data. There's a flight from from San Francisco to Philadelphia every evening at a certain time. I checked that flight and and normally like the actual time it takes off is usually a few minutes after. 
the scheduled departure time. So if it's scheduled to depart at, I don't know what it was, 11 o'clock or something, it frequently will actually leave the ground at 11.10 or 11.15. That's pretty common by the time they actually get out there and get taken off. Um, and so you can see, like, pretty consistently it was within that two or three or five minute window. This flight, like, actually left the ground like an hour late. But it wasn't delayed. There was no reason for it whatsoever. So I think God worked a miracle for me. I made it there in the next morning, and, and the weekend went very, very well. But I guess I, I had a, 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 a time of change in my life, and I had an anchor. And I want you guys to have that anchor too. And I want you to examine your life, especially when the changes come. Is, is, your, is, the, is your identity grounded in Christ and your and you as a servant to him, following him, doing his will, trying to find what his will is, is that the most core, the most fundamental thing about you? Is that what motivates everything else you do? Or is it just a tack on? Is Are you primarily a child of a family or a parent of a family or a, or a member of the church or a friend of this friend group or a whatever else? And Christ is just kind of an attachment. I thought of the song, and I'll read this in closing. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Thanks for your time.